Hello, you lot. Um, I hope you're all doing well. Um, I'm slightly giddy at the moment. As a, I haven't slept enough in the last 48 hours due to a really frustrating server issue that I've been dealing with for my day job. Um, and we've also just had new counters installed in our kitchen. So the smell of the epoxy has been adding to my general slightly sort of drunken feeling state. Um, I mentioned on social media that this episode would be slightly late, and it turns out that I was right about that. But thankfully, I'm still getting this posted up on a Wednesday for you, so thank you for bearing with me. Um, so I switched gears a little and decided to publish a conversation I had last week with Megan Volpert, whose new book, Straight Into Darkness, Tom Petty as Rock Mystic, is available right now at fine retailers everywhere, uh, as well as online, obviously. Um, I had a fantastic chat with Megan uh, about Tom, about her musical upbringing, about her book, and about music in general. Um, Megan's a prolific author and journalist who's written or edited over a dozen books. Um, she's also written extensively for Pop Matters and Atlanta In Town and a variety of other publications on a huge array of topics, whether it be music, fashion, perfume. She digs into all sorts of different uh, interesting topics. So it was really incredible to spend um, a couple of hours with her uh, and find out why she decided to write a whole book about one song which sounds on its face like a little bit of an odd choice. Um, I have my book ordered, uh, and I'll also be giving away a copy in the next few weeks, so watch out for that. Um, if you want to check out Megan's website, please go to meganvolpert.com. Um, I'll leave links in the episode notes, as I always do, and I'll publish some stuff on online um, so that you can find places to go buy the book. And if you purchase it directly from the University of Georgia Press, you can get a 30%, I think it's 30% discount right now, uh, with the code 08straight, so 08straight. Um, anyway, I, that's enough blathering from me for now. Um, I really hope you enjoyed this one, folks. It was fun, it was educational, and it was very entertaining. So I'll see you on the flip side. Tom Petty. Tom Petty So, where did you grow up? I, I think Chicago, right? You, it was where you were born and yep. raised. So, how was that? That's a pretty good musical city. So, what was music like in uh, in your house growing up? My parents were strictly top 40 people. They were strictly oldies people. My mom is like a textbook Paul Simon, Fleetwood Mac right. listener. And my dad could do like, he enjoyed the 50s oldies. You know, the music of his dad was the music that he listened to. Yeah. Um. So, you know, I there was not a lot of like coolness in my house. In my house, you could not listen to the rap station as we called it at the time, you know? Yeah. Um, college radio was sort of like both beneath, beneath me and beyond me at the same time. Like I didn't get what indie music was about. So really just the most commercialized music available, mainstream music available is what I listened to for most of my young life. Um, which of course is, I mean, I'm sure the first time I heard Tom Petty, it was just on the radio, you know? Yeah. So you were obviously then like me, probably not, not, not being old enough, just not exposed to that. I was jealous of people who, heard that record, you know, when it came out. And so I was like, oh man, it would have yeah. been so cool. But I think also that probably at that time, I might not have got it. I might not have latched onto it the same way I did later. Um, my entry point into Tom Petty being, you know, quite a lot later. So I wonder about that sometimes. Um, so did you have, do you have siblings? You didn't have any siblings going out and bringing their friends' records over and all that kind of stuff. So it was really just, just that top 40 radio. Yeah, I'm the oldest of oh, four. Okay. So it was my responsibility. <laughs> 
was stuff like you know some i remember somebody got me a copy of nirvana's in utero album for my sweet 16 and i was so excited because it was like all i had wanted for the month since it came out before my birthday and my dad immediately was like you can't have that that's junky music go back to the store and get something that's like acceptable (laughs) acceptable according to my shitty conservative politics (laughs) so you know, I went and fortunately, and this is a story that I told in a different book, but fortunately he didn't check my purchase when I came back. Cause what I ended up doing was I swapped that Nirvana album for a sex pistols album. And really the rest of my story, <laughs> my superhero origin kind of writes itself from there, you know, but yeah, music was like a heavily policed thing in my household. And we were not religious. My dad just had a very like, leave it to beaver you know, white suburban mentality towards the way he wanted to raise his children. And being the oldest, I got really the brunt of that. Yeah. Only music that was acceptable was, you know, traditional rock and roll music, which which Tom Petty was a part of Yeah, at the time. When again, that first album cover, you know, everyone thought it was punk. People wouldn't play it because of the, the bullets and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, Breakdown in Hometown Blues, super punk, this guy, you know. So did you, was that something that you sort of pushed back against then? Or, or I'm sure everyone, because everyone does push back against their parents in their teens. Was that some, Was that an avenue where you thought, well, this rock and roll is for me and this is what I love and I need to get this out somehow? How quickly did that sort of become part of who you were? Oh, uh, the life-changing thing for me in my household was headphones. <laughs> like my as soon as my parents could no longer hear what I was listening to you know I just had to learn not to blast whatever I wanted to blast I just had to blast it into my own ears only and in doing that it was fine you know they never caught me quote unquote with Nirvana (laughs) or the Sex Pistols or Tom Petty or the Ramones or you know when some man when somebody introduced me to the Ramones in high school that was like all the gateway drug that I needed you know so yeah, once I once I knew that I could listen to music covertly, so to speak, because it was in in only my own ears, then that was the game changer. It's funny when you get. Do you remember sort of that point when you get bitten by rock and roll? Because to me, it's it's a very distinct memory in my mind. So you know, I'm I was born in '73, and we had the big record player and even bigger headphones than these that covered. You know, when you're six, seven years old, they cover your whole head. And yeah. so I'd sit down with my dad's vinyl records, and I put on Zep Four. And it's Black Dog. So when that room, 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 and uh-huh. uh, Plant's voice comes in, it's like, what is this? This is for <laughs> me. This is my music. And I'm that sort of that epiphany that, oh, there's music out there that is written for young people. And it's not all, you know, she wears pink feathers and a hoolie skirt. It's not all that crap that my granddad was listening to. Did Do you remember any sort of Damasian moment with, with that kind of thing? Or was it a yeah. good, more gradual? Yeah, okay. I've written about this too. The formative okay. moment for me, I think it's in my um, Springsteen book. The formative moment for me is I was I was maybe like five or six years old and my mother was saying the Beatles, the Beatles. And I was like, bugs are disgusting. And she said to me, you don't know who the Beatles are. And I said, you're my mom. You're the only person I hang out with. What if I need to know something, then tell me. And she was like, okay, honey, the Beatles are a band. I'm going to go to the record collection. We're going to listen. And so then the first song she ever played me was the twist and shout, you know, the, the cover. Yeah. And so that's how the Isley brothers came to me, first of all. But then second of all, you know, that's how I heard of the Beatles is like for three minutes, I was allowed to jump up and down on the couch because we were doing twisting and shouting. You know what I mean? That was the whole yeah. impetus for the song. So my, I saw my mom dance really for the first time, you know, outside of like wedding situations or whatever, like slow dancing I had seen her do, but I had never seen her like rock out before. 
And so I had never had permission to rock out before. And so that really was the formative moment, the Beatles doing Twist and Shout when I was like tiny, tiny. Well, it's funny you say, you know, if, you, if your dad doesn't doesn't want you listening to Nirvana, but his parents wouldn't want to, him listening to the Beatles. So it's, yeah, it's funny how parents sometimes forget. And I, you know, I, my daughter listens to hardcore rap and I sometimes have to check and think, no, it's just different just because I don't like it. And maybe I just right. don't get it. doesn't mean right. that it's, it's bad or wrong. So I always, I'm always conscious of that and try not to be that, that dad, you know? Yeah. Um, so growing up, so you went to, uh, Louisiana state university. Is that right? Yeah. Did so. I spent 18 years in Illinois and then for graduate school, I went to Louisiana state in Baton Rouge, bought my apartment on the internet, had never set foot in the state <laughs> of Louisiana when I decided to accept a full ride to go get an MFA in, in writing there. Um, and it was the correct thing, you know? followed the Mississippi river sort of from the top of the country to the bottom of the country. Yeah. And I loved it down there. I, I love waffle house. I love Southern culture. <laughs> I love Southern weather, whether it's too sweaty or, or super hot and dry. I love all kinds of Southern climate. Um, I love the people because there's something kind of great about the, the rude and offensive nature of in your face racism in the south is to right. me sort of preferable to the like covert passive aggressions of new england and the midwest and you know we like to act in the midwest like everyone leaves each other alone and minds their business but that's emphatically not true you know yeah um the the overtness of separations in the south really kind of appealed to me so i moved here because i i knew to a certain extent i wasn't wanted here you know, as a lefty, both a literal right. left-handed person and a and an intellectual liberal going to graduate school, you know, <laughs> I, I knew that I was not wanted uh, as a queer person. I knew I was not wanted. And so I sort of like to get into spaces where I know I'm not too much wanted. I just say it's a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so, I, so that... I like. I like Sorry. being in the front line of the trench, culturally speaking. I like to help advance our team, which is a part of the reason that Petty's music appeals to me. I think he often was surprised to find himself in the top 40. I'm sure that in the beginning of his career, he was very amused by the unclassifiability, the unmarketability, you know, the fact yeah. that he was bigger in England than he was in America to start with. I'm sure that he was amused by being sort of unwanted you know, frustrating though it may be and hard work though it may be, I'm sure that he sort of was amused by that. And I, I too am amused by that. I like to be in the front. And I think I'd read somewhere on your bio about you've you've taught American studies and uh -huh. I, I don't know exactly what that is being a Brit and being a Canadian. But I think that, as you're just saying though, Tom Petty is quintessentially American in a very different way that, than Bruce is. He's more sort of every man America and, he, and he's, and he's broader. Um, so yeah, that, that appeal that would they, they break in England before they do in the U S and they've even got American girl on the first album. It's written on the 4th of July in the bicentennial year. So how much more American do you want to be? And yet can't get on the radio. So what was your first experience with Tom's music then? Do you remember clearly what the first time you heard him or like you said, you heard no, him on the radio, but I'm sure it, it I'm sure it came from my mom. Cause my mom's yeah. a huge, my mom lives and dies by Fleetwood Mac, you know? Yeah. Um, and the Eagles as well. And so that's all in the mix with the Heartbreakers at the same time. So she didn't have Tom Petty albums at home, but I'm pretty sure that whatever my mom had on the radio would have Tom Petty in heavy rotation as well. So that's surely the first time I heard him. So when did you when did you latch on to him though? When did you sort of go from 
knowing, you know, you know, American Girl, and you hear Freefall, and everyone knows all those songs. When, when did it become more, oh, wait a minute, there's something about this guy that I actually need to go and listen to and, and start taking a little bit more seriously? Yeah, from time to time in my life, I've just hunkered down on a particular musician, not out of need, but out of curiosity. Like, I, I spent a long moment of my life thinking about Lou Reed. I spent another long moment thinking about Bruce Springsteen. I'm about to spend a long one thinking about Alanis Morissette. Um, and so there are just some times where I feel like a deep study right now would be good for me. Yeah. Um, and so I sort of, you know, I knew that I wanted to keep hammering away at just masculinist mainstream rock and roll, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I thought Tom Petty's got good music. Let me see what else there is to see here kind of behind the scenes about the man, about the philosophy of the man. Um, and so then once I started doing that, you know, certain songs really began to click more than others. It's funny you say that, you know, that because oh, I wanted to get into that a little bit at some point, but that masculinity thing is, is such a, I find that such a dichotomy with Tom because he, you know, especially early in his career, he definitely presented as very, very macho, very, you know, he's, he's got the leather and the, and the fuck you attitude and stabbing the knife in the desk and all this kind of stuff. But it sort of belies that sensitivity in his lyrics and his in his outlook on life, you know, to the extent that I think it was the it was the American Girl single, right? When they released it in UK, they had that awful young girl sort of Lolita figure on the cover, and Tom made them change it because no, that's not the way I want to brand myself. That's not what we're talking about. And I think yeah. he always had that an uncharacteristic respect for women, you know, and obviously a, a few times he would, he would sort of breach that, but throughout his career and especially early on, when most rockers were about you know, it's all about just going out, getting yeah. laid, everything else. He never really seemed at least to be about that. And I don't think he really was, right? I think, and I'm happy, I'm send me your hate mail. I'm happy to read it, okay? <laughs> I think that out of his cohort, out of people whose careers launched during the 70s, there is no question that by any measure, Tom Petty is the most feminist rocker in the, in the 70s, out of his cohort. There's right. no question in my mind whatsoever. And that's judging by the lyrics, by the responsibility uh, he took toward having an ethical tour, um, by the criticisms he made and how carefully he controlled his MTV music videos, the album cover artwork, the t-shirt artwork, even yep. the idea of like unisex t-shirts versus gendered sizing on the t-shirt, you know, like there was a lot of stuff that he was doing before anybody else cared to even question it, let alone act on. You know, um, he gets so much credit for like keeping album prices low and fighting the record companies. But a part of that fight against the record companies was against that masculine identity that they wanted him to have that he just was not into. You know, he didn't want to go there. Well, and it's, you know, obviously in, in, in the world as it is today, we talk a lot about toxic masculinity. And it is that sort of Tom's masculinity was genuine masculinity. He was a man he knew, he was a man, and he, and he behaved like what he thought a man should behave like. And I think, obviously, a lot of that was informed by the way his father treated him. And, you know, that thing of you either that develops you and, and defines you, or you push back against it and say, well, I'm never going to do that. And I think that that's a, a great thing that he, he managed to go that way, and it's just part of his character. But yeah. like I said, I think that sort of leans again into this word that we always end up coming back to when I'm talking to anybody about, with anybody about Tom Petty, is authenticity. Everything he did was just, if he believed it, he just wouldn't compromise on it. Whether it be the prices, whether it be the tour prices, whether it be any of those things, he just, there was never, it's almost like there was never a, a question that he could even contemplate, well, I'm, I'm, I'll just, 
I'll give them that. I'll let them have that. Never. He just never did that, right? So, which was quite unusual. Again, I think in the 70s, a new artist coming in to go and tell the record company, I'm not having that label change it. It's pretty ballsy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even today, it still would be considered ballsy. You know, at least then you could get a meeting and you could be heard. But now it's like, no, I'm sorry. That's not the way we do things. You can find another label if that's the way you want to approach this. We're not having a conversation about the terms of the contract are what they are and they're not open to negotiation. Yeah. You know, well, it's it's industry rather than art now. I mean, I mean, always it always was to a certain extent, but it's it's so much worse now that I don't know if there really is any rock and roll art coming through in the mainstream that I can think of over the last. I don't know. 10, 15 years. Like Royal Blood is a band that is quite popular. But again, we talk about, you know, feminism, respect for women. You listen to their lyrics. I mean, it's like ACDC on steroids. It's my young daughter loves them, but it's like, well, just read the lyrics and understand that these are not good. You can like the melody and you can enjoy the music, but just (laughs) think about what they're actually saying because it it really doesn't, it doesn't work for me. So, um, so I wanted to just kind of touch on, um, you obviously had sort of a um, a watershed moment with Tom's music um, at a low point in your life that sort of led to your uh, a real sort of close relationship to a specific song that we're going to be talking about with your with your new book. So can you sort of give me a little bit of background on where you were at while all that was going on and what was going on in your life that led you to, you know, um, almost taking really quite yeah. drastic action? Yeah, I was in a huge amount of daily chronic pain. And as anyone with a lot of chronic pain will tell you, it's a it's a mentally debilitating experience to have, you know, kind of like a constant steady drip of this pain. Every waking moment, every sleeping moment, it affects the quality of your dreams. It affects your ability to be reasoning and articulate in daytime waking life. And so because of this chronic pain that I was in um, from a GI disease, from an autoimmune condition, uh, the pain just got so bad and I was soldiering on because I was a public school teacher at the time. And that is what you do. You can't just take a week <laughs> off because, you know, you're on the toilet shitting blood 20 times a day. It's like not acceptable to just say like, I'm so sick. I might die. Forget about it. You know? Yeah. Um, and so I was dragging myself to work and I was waiting for my train one morning at like, pre-dawn out it's like five o'clock in the morning i'm there with my backpack waiting to go to school when i can barely stand up i can barely get myself on the train but i'm still doing it because you know for whatever stupid like working class grind culture mentality (laughs) i had at the time you know i was determined to just do my job correct as best i could um and i just thought you know it would be nice if i just fell asleep standing up right now if I just fell over onto these train tracks and blinked out and it would be fine, you know? And so I wouldn't say that it was necessarily like suicidal ideation, but it was pretty close, you know, like I just really needed surrender. However, briefly I needed a break from the insane pain that I was in. And just as I was thinking like, Oh, my eyelids are getting a little heavy, you know? Uh, I had my headphones in because everybody does on the train Um, and straight into darkness came through. And by the time it got to the chorus, I just was like, "Okay, no, this is correct. I need to approach this a different way. I need to bear in mind that the good times are not all gone and that the thrills are not over, despite the fact that right now they're very far distant in a way that I can't even see them. You know, so it really it got me through the one moment where I was truly at risk. Um, And that's why I thought, okay, so let me push on that. 
once once I was strong enough and able enough. And we did eventually get my disease under control. And I'm proud to say that I've been in remission for several many years now. So that's the good news, right? It's like I can I can think straight. And uh, but when I couldn't think straight, Tom Petty helped a lot. And it, it's it's one of those things. I mean, I don't know if you're I don't know if you do social media and Facebook and things, but on the Tom Petty Nation, it's it's not an isolated case. It comes through so many times. And I know that's true also of Dylan and Springsteen and, and these other these other artists. There's always going to be that one thing that people connect to, but it always feels a little bit different to me with Tom. Just there's something about him that... I don't know. I Yeah, I want to say he's a special snowflake because that's what my whole book is about. But at the same time, you know, I've written about Velvet Underground, Bruce Springsteen, other other folks in the music industry. Yeah. Uh, and I got to say, there's just something about Church of Rock and Roll. And Tom is one of the preachers in the Church of Rock and Roll. But there are many, many denominations, you know, <laughs> um, and there there is a worshipful quality to the fandom to a certain extent for some people who came to it by way of a traumatic experience. Um, a, like the most glaring example is for sure Elvis, but also to a certain extent, the Beatles, Tom Petty, the, Kurt Cobain, Eddie yeah. Vedder suffers from that has has talked a lot about um some of some painful experiences that he's had with fans as a result of their over worshipfulness yeah. of him um so yeah i think it's common for a certain variety of rock and roller to, to be considered a sort of spiritual guru yeah and, and it, again i think a lot of that is personality and charisma right so it does take that sort of you know i'd take someone like um i don't know vince neal from motley Crue. terrible example but it's the first one came to mind no one's idolizing that guy from a philosophical standpoint they might sort of right. want to choose but it, you don't connect to him because you don't really feel like he's telling you the truth maybe maybe that's it so it's those guys who sort of get up and sing with a little bit more conviction or they, they t tell stories in a certain way like i said you know those, those, those are the beatles or the stones or whoever it might be you connect to those well it's stones but again might be a bad example but you connect to those just a little bit differently because you can connect to it not just on that musical level not just the yeah rock and roll but it's it's a little bit deeper than that and that's what i like you, I sort of I'm sort of a bit of an obsessive too. I, and I did the same thing with Steve Earle and John Prine and a, and a few other people I'd never heard of before I moved mm. to Canada. And so when I dug back into Tom's catalog, I know Free Falling, I know Run Down a Dream, I know the hits. But when you start listening to those first two, three, four, five albums, you think, oh my god, this guy's just he's every single song is meticulously constructed. It's thought about. It's considered that the, the the arrangements are thought about. And the first two albums a little bit less so, just because they were so rushed and they were still figuring that out. But those Iovine trilogy albums and, and Long After Dark, especially, it's just every single note's perfectly placed, or it's certainly been thought about to a degree that you don't always get that sense that some rock and roll bands do that. And so again, yeah. I think that that's what that's something what I connect to is I love people who tell the truth, but I also appreciate nerds who go about their business very professionally right and who sort of well this is actually the studio bit and the, and the stage bit that's the job you've got to take that seriously take your work seriously never take yourself seriously and that's that's always been my sort of where up where i land with tom so yeah um so i read yesterday the piece you wrote for pop matters on october 4th 2017 of course that was two days after tom died and I spoke to Jeff Slate about this too when I when I interviewed him. How do I, how hard was that one to write? And did you have any of that sort of pre-written as, you know, journalists will quite often have little bits and pieces. That was just a straight, yep. I got to sit and write this down, yeah. <laughs> I found out about it five minutes after I finished crying, that initial cry, I yep. emailed my editor and I said, this piece is coming. I didn't ask her, I told <laughs> her, this piece is coming. I'll give it to you. You know, you'll have it in eight hours or less. 
Um, and then I just, you know, I finished out my day job at the school and then immediately started clacking away at the keys and, and that's just what came out, <laughs> you know, um, it's funny because as much as you were saying like the, the Iovine albums, uh, are sort of your favorite bunch in there because of the, the deep intentionality of them. A lot of Petty's work that I love the most is the one take wonders and like silly little noodle goof yeah. around things that he would do like heartbreakers beach party or gator on the lawn, stuff like stuff that you find like mixed in, in the playback albums, yeah. you know, um, just like little blah, blahs that took 90 seconds and he just was figuring it out, improvising on, on the floor. They're so funny and, and good. And uh, the part of me that relates to him is the one take wonder part, not so much the like sit down, obsessively revise. I think you seconds of intentionality and it's a Polaroid snapshot of what was going on then. And then yeah. you just let it, let it loose. And so that obituary was nothing that was pre-planned and it just, I just sat down, did it in one shot, checked it for typos and sent it in. When, for my listeners, I'll, I'll put a link in my, in the episode notes here, but when you read it, the, the cool thing about it is it, it's, it, it is partly biographical. It sort of gives, you know, the, you, you need the main touch points because not everyone's going to have that same background on this artist that, that the fans have, but it's also personal. It's also written from a fan's a very personal standpoint. And then also you've structured it around those last, the last verse of Straight Into Darkness, which is super cool. And then you sort of frame that in, in such a good way that it gives it narrative flow as well as being, like I said, an obituary or a biography. So I thought that was, I thought that was super cool. So I'm going to share that with everyone and everyone should read it. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I mean, when we talk about Petty's authenticity, we're talking about the fact that he lived by the songs that he wrote. You know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't just that he crafted songs that were cool or that touched people in an emotional place. It's like he did seem to live out the values that he preached in his music. Yeah. And I think, you know, you said like the Iovine trilogy, as I, re I refer to, I always think of his, his work in three periods. You've got that early period up to probably around about Let Me Up. Then you've got that middle period where he goes off and does the solo record and he does Wildflowers and she's the one. And then that late period stuff, which I would sort of say from last DJ on, that's that's the sort of how I break those down in my own brain. Um, and I love the, the Iovine trilogy for it's, you know, it's it's Iovine teaching them how to make records in a studio, you know, and, and there's all, all that sort of comes out. And then you, you take that off and you go and do Mojo, totally different. You know, having the balls <laughs> to go and do that, go and do, oh, we're going to make a blues record. Oh, and we're going to basically record this live off the floor in our practice space. We're not going into studio. Yeah. That, that again, that's incredible. And something that's going to bore my listeners to death because I keep saying this every time I talk to anyone is hypnotic eye. When you think about rockers at that age, they're in greatest hits mode. No one wants to hear the, the new tracks. But hypnotic eye yeah. is the work of a man who still has a hell of a lot to say and is still trying to improve his craft, still trying to improve his guitar playing, still trying to improve his songwriting and finding new and interesting things to say. So that's what always, that's the, if anything that sort of mainly upsets me about him being gone is that he definitely wasn't done yet because he still clearly had you know, a lot of, a lot, a lot of things to give to the art form, I think. Sure. But I mean, that would have been true if he had died at a hundred as well, Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, in the introduction to this book, I say, I, I, I have enough material here to think on that. I really could just work on this one book my whole life. Yeah. But at some point you can't, you have to say like, we're cutting it and some it's always arbitrary no matter when it strikes. And so he was 66. Good for him. Yeah. You know? It's pretty long in the life of a rock and roller. He did outlive many, many of his his cohort. <laughs> well, and again, I think stayed relevant. I mean, I, I know relevancy is that's a horrible word, and if you use it in a you know a context of sort of modern popular music, he wasn't 
breaking any boundaries. But in terms of, again, in terms of rock and roll in the art form, he was still definitely challenging it and still taking it in different interesting ways, like Fault Lines. You know, you've got Steve Ferroni playing that wicked, crazy bossa nova beat on this rasping, dirty... It's such a phenomenal song that I... Again, it's, I think it's probably one of my top three or four or five Tom Petty songs, but anyway. Um, I like... There's a quote um, that you'd put in that I had sort of... My, the last episode that I just recorded was for You Got Lucky. And in that I heard you talk about, hilariously, he ended up making MTV great in its early days. Yeah. And again, so it's that thing of, okay, and you, you touched on it earlier, that when he's making rock videos, it's not just chicks in bikinis like he's not dave lee roth um he's making something that's again it's not really anything to do with the song when he does that video and it comes you know the, the timing's really good because it then as mtv comes in and they need just content that's one of the videos of course that's going to fit really well for that medium and it just gets played and played and played and played so i think that that um that that's nothing to do with the music, but that's that sort of restless creative side that I also think that he had, right? It, it, whether he'd been a musician or a painter or a photographer or something like that, I don't think he could ever or would ever have stopped. And I get the sense that you're very much the same with your creative work is that it's like a, you can't turn it off, right? It's like the sun, you cannot turn it off. And and sometimes you wish you could because I'm still, it's two o'clock in the morning, I'm still thinking about this bloody chorus that I can't get right on this song or I can't finish this this chapter of this book. So creatively... How do you deal with that? How, how do you deal with sort of, do you accept that, well, I'm this is me, I'm creative, and it means that I'm just always going to be working on something and my brain's never going to stop going? Like, how do you deal with that? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I definitely am trying to work less, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, I quit my job as a public high school teacher to be a consultant in the private sector, and that move for me was about owning more of my own work product and yeah. not being told what to do so much. So those are ways that I relate to Petty as well. Like he would have been a great candidate for somebody to belatedly in life, start a record label for himself. You know what I mean? Just to have absolute creative control over everything and, and yeah. give that same permissiveness to other musicians. And he, towards the end of his life, he had been doing more and more work as a producer and I think, you know, maybe at 70 or 75 or something, he might, that light switch might've turned on for him, yeah. you know, as one, one avenue he might've taken when touring on such a heavy rotation would no longer physically really be an option, you know? Um, but how do I deal with, I don't know. Like it's a, it's a calling to produce any form of art Yeah. and, but yeah, I need brain breaks just like everybody else. If I'm going to produce good material instead of just producing infinite material, I worry about, you know, in this book, I, we, there's a lot of discussion of the album cycle to go into the studio and record it and then to tour it and then to sit down and write another album and record it and then tour it is that like, you could set a watch by when the heartbreakers were on tour and when their yeah. album releases were, you know, even numbered years and odd numbered years, you always knew where you were at with, with Tom Petty and the heartbreakers. And I'm actually trying to get away from that because one of the lessons of the book is that that sort of rinse and repeat ultimately gets to you creatively, yeah. ultimately stifles you creatively. And, you know, it wasn't that Petty wanted to top himself or top anybody that he perceived as competition because he didn't really perceive competition. But 
he wanted to do something that was always a swerve from whatever he had previously done. And that too, for sure, I relate to, you know, like all my books might be about popular culture, but not even all of them are about music. I have a lot of like fashion and perfume stuff, a lot of political stuff, you know, so uh, food stuff, you know, I, I cast a wide net. And I think he also was about doing something that was a challenge for him and using a different part of his creativity every time. Well, I think that's a pretty good segue into let's get into the book, um, which is releasing as we record this, it's releasing tomorrow. So <laughs> tell my listeners what the book is. And my, my interest is when did you, decide, I mean, obviously straight into darkness, we talked about um, what that song means in that point in your life. But at what point did you then decide, well, I think I need to dig into this as a whole book because the whole book on one song, that's, I would say that's fairly rare. I can't think of any real examples of anyone else doing that so yeah uh well you know i'm a big fan of the 33 and a third series which treats different different albums and i thought you know some of these don't really go across the whole album they just focus on a couple of bits and pieces and so for a while uh, i had thought about what album would i cover if i covered a tom petty album specifically to pitch to 33 and a third um and this was when they had no tom petty's in their in their ginormous collection of albums to be considered and that i couldn't understand i thought i'm going to personally rectify this (laughs) um i ended up pitching damn the torpedoes because i thought it was what they would want even though it wasn't really what i would want but they didn't want it and they told me so and so i thought oh so now i'm free to pursue whatever i want to pursue and this was maybe 2014 2015 or so um and then i thought maybe long after no one talks about long after dark everyone assumes that long after dark is like a piece of crap between two different eras of good stuff right and i thought so let me investigate this album that everyone else says is worthless yeah um and so yeah i just wanted to do the unusual do as i as i so often as i so often (laughs) enjoy um so that's when i began to think that there might be something there when it's I, yeah, with the album itself, I mean, I, I again, I, I came at all those early albums later on, so I didn't have that sort of preconception of what everyone says about this album. So when I heard it, it's just that natural progression from Torpedoes, Hard Promises into Long After Dark. It's it's fantastic. And yeah. then you get this, the tone switches in that album. And he's not, he's writing less abstract. And of course, he was a master at being able to say something very specific, but make it abstract enough. But you definitely get the the scabs getting picked off on this album. And even just even the song titles. You know, you look, you look yeah. through that list of song titles. Um, Change of Heart, Finding Out, You Got Lucky, We Stand a Chance, Straight Into Darkness, Same Old You, Between Two Worlds. This is confessional, right? Like it's Tom writing yeah. in a way that he hasn't done before. So for people to write that album off, and sonically, it's bloody fantastic. And again, I, I I found it curious reading again back through. Um, I think it was Paul Zolo's book where he Paul asks him like, you know, you didn't like this album, and he says that basically he felt like they were treading water and they weren't really, they weren't really right. sort of making breaking the mold and making new sounds. But again, you got lucky, and this one don't sound like anything else that had come before. There wasn't a Tom Petty song that started with piano like that. There certainly wasn't yeah. anything that had since. So I I think maybe it's as an artist when you're so close to it, you don't actually see that it is that it is quite different and sometimes you just need that little bit of space right so so right. What's, what's your relationship with the album as a whole then before we dig into the into the song uh it's it's a, a lot of petty's records are pretty philosophical but this one just struck me as, as struck me as so barefaced in that regard yeah. you know um 
I mean, it's easy to construe it as being about a failed love affair of some type, but it's not at all that really. It's actually like Tom trying to coax his creativity out of the pocket and into the microphone. You know, he is, he is engaged in a deep struggle to produce the thing that he promised he would, that his band members are counting on him to accomplish. Yeah. And he just was having a really hard time with it. And so instead of writing about nothingness, he decided to write about the struggle of it. So I've written long essays about one song before, and I've written long essays about an entire album before, but it did seem a little daunting to do an entire book length project until I started thinking about just because I simply don't have the chops to go song by song and analyze musically everything that's going on. But I do definitely have the chops to analyze the philosophical premises of the music and how they match up with his life. And just as a journalist, I was, I was prepared to do the historical contextualization of the album and of the song. And then as an English teacher for 20 years, I was, I was delighted to have the opportunity to go word by word, not even line by line, (laughs) but literally word by word through each verse and say, you know, here's all the things that this could be about. Here's the things Tom liked them to be about. So we can guess, you know, and he never wanted to say what his songs were about. So, So, you know, he would have liner notes written by someone other than him or he, he would enjoy articles about it or not enjoy articles about it. You know, I don't know. I don't know what he would have made of this book in the end. He probably would think it's hilarious that I wrote an entire book about a single song, but yeah, I don't think he would have disapproved, but I think he would have probably been weirded out. I don't think he would have straightforwardly approved the project either, but I've made my peace with that. <laughs> Well, I think there is that you'd have to have a massive ego, right, to to say, oh yeah, no, I think yeah. someone should write a whole book about one of my songs. Because yeah, why would anyone do that? Why would anyone, you know, commit to a six, seven hundred hours of a podcast on one? Mu- it's, it, it seems on its face to be a madness and a, and a conceit on our part. So it, you know, it's our sort of we want to do this because we love this so much, or because we think we can do it justice. Which again, it's got there's a tinge of arrogance there when we, when we approach these projects. I think, but I think. Tom at least would sort of recognize that it's someone creative with something to say and sort of being very erudite and, and being able to sort of express their, their thoughts. You know, well, who, you know who never questions me about one song for a whole book? The Bob Dylan fans. <laughs> Anybody right. I talk to, any music critics who consider themselves Dylanologists, and you know, yeah. there are some prominent ones. We don't have to name names, but yeah. anytime I talk to any of those guys about this work, they think it's great and obviously the thing to do. You yeah. know, <laughs> it's like that's who gets the full book length treatment of a single song, people like Bob Dylan. And this is just like two inches down the road from that, I think, probably. Well, and this. But there is there is so much to get under under the under the skin and bones of these songs, and like I, said, I do approach it more from the the musical side of it. And again, going through and listening to these songs in a real with a really sort of critical ear under headphones under a good set of headphones, there's so much stuff you miss. And so again, again, when you go through the lyrics, it's like, wait a minute, he's used he's switching tense there, or he's doing this, or he's using this very peculiar phrasing, and he's doing that for a reason. It's not just his southern roots, or it's not just sort of. Uh, it's not just being sting where the, where the bounce of the words are almost more important than what the words say, but it, he's choosing these words very specifically. So, of course, you can dig into those. And if you've yeah. got that philosophical bent, I'm sure you can get much more out of it than the layperson. So, yeah. So, and again, that, you know, the, the second verse, I remember flying out to London. I remember feeling at the time out of the window of 747, man, there was nothing, only black sky. I always think that that, that verse 
is about it's sort of that introspective looking at i don't know if there's anything left in there it's, it's like you're saying if, if, if you apply the sort of the creative side of it of making a record it's it's like i what if what if the well runs dry and it's only black sky now what if there's no more ideas that's a really kind of scary thing and so you can parallel that with a with a, with a flight and i think that's a really clever analogy to use is that mm. what you take from that sort of that verse or was there a deeper thing that you found in there not no, to, and I don't want to sort of reveal too much of the book, but no, I mean that's one of the things that's in the chapter on that particular verse. But it's also about, I mean, he's literally flying into the great unknown. You know, um, he had never been to England, let, and little did he know that a, a massively excellent critical reception awaited him when he got there. That he was like yeah. flying directly into the face of his stardom, but he was terrified because he didn't know whether it was going to be there or what it was going to be like. You know, so it, it is him confronting an emptiness of creative output and also the emptiness of any of us having an uncertain future. But and we know now in retrospect that what happened was it was the awesomest thing. You know, it turned yeah. out great for him. So it's nice to listen to the song and know that that verse has a happy ending to it. The verse suspends you in that state of radical uncertainty that we've all been in from time to time. Yeah, for sure. And I think there's also an interesting thing there that he writes that verse about those feelings retrospectively. So this is, you know, six, seven years or whatever after that, six years, I think, after the tour in England. So be able to still tap into those emotions and tap into that uncertainty of back then, maybe paralleling the uncertainty he has now. And I think, you know, you read anything that... that Anything, anytime Tom's talking about his work, he's never cocksure of what he's doing. He's never, he, I don't think he ever said this is going to be a hit. He was always really unsure. I think someone had asked him, um, he said, how long, how long do you think the heartbreakers have gone? He says, well, we're booked for Mondays. We've got a, we've got a show on Monday. So, and it's sort of that, you know, that, well, we'll just play it by ear. And I, I don't know if people keep listening, I'll keep making the records. But so he never had that sort of, he never got that overconfidence coming through. No, I think about the lyric from, the lyric from Room at the Top of the World, where he's like, I got more than a thousand dollars in the bank. I'm all right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, yeah. But there were times when I listened to that song where I did not have a thousand dollars in the bank. You know, I grew up a working class person. Four digits in the bank account was like unheard of in my family yep. for the most part, you yep. know. And so, but now I definitely do have a thousand dollars in the bank. And so, damn, it does feel like being in a room at the top of the world but it's a low bar it's a very low bar to set and he was he was comfortable knowing what his comfort level was yeah yeah yeah, for sure so just in terms of, sort of the process of writing the book then um how did how did you start that did you sort of obviously you know this song inside out by this point i'm assuming you sort of it's just part of like all the songs that we all love it's just you don't really need to hear it it's just always there you could you could cycle it on and turn it on and just listen to it in your own head so how did you attack it did you sort of was it background research first? Did you sort of read, you know, I know, I know you reviewed Warren Zane's biography. Did you go back and sort of place it in that time period to see what was going on in his life and what was going on in maybe in sort of even popular music? What was that sort of first starting point to be able to write the book? Well, the first thing I did was, this is, you know, lame English teacher answer, but I made an outline. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I knew I wanted to treat each verse as its own chapter. And I knew that I wanted to cover a couple of other topics, like that there would need to be some short work in the beginning to give the history of the Heartbreakers up till that album, but that I didn't want to get bogged down and dwell so much in like how the band came to be, the, the yeah. Iovine years. I didn't want to dwell too much in all of that. I wanted to get pretty quickly to the album at, at hand. And then I knew that I wanted to spend at least half of the book 
in genuine reflection mode and not so much in like analysis of the song per se. I wanted to analyze the concepts that were there and like what they meant for his body of work and for any life at large. Um, so I knew that I wanted to talk about transcendentalism and absurdity and like just mystical topics, you know, um, yeah. for example, there's a big chunk of the book that deals with why there is so much violence at Heartbreaker shows. Um, I've experienced a lot of violence at the shows yeah, from time really? to time. Yeah, there's a there's a little like memoirish piece in the middle of the book that talks about my different random experiences with like almost getting in fights, almost getting knocked over, you know, bottles being thrown around, people threatening, just weird stuff coming from the fans, you know. Wow. Um, and but then the Heartbreakers too have a long history of like random as most fans do and it's not very it's not very cool to talk about it but like the incidents of electrocutions or like what? times the fan times the fans almost tore you apart because you got too close to the edge of the stage stuff yeah. like that um and so the heartbreakers often questioned why their audiences were so violent when their whole stage vibe was like peace y'all peace yeah. peace out um, they they didn't really understand it, but they often compared themselves to like the Grateful Dead's audience and they couldn't figure out why were so different or Bob Dylan's audience. The fans were so different. Springsteen, you know, they often thought about like, what is this weird mystical thing with our audience that they like get bloody sometimes, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I yeah, wanted it can't to be the about that. It, it, can't be the, it can't be the music and it can't be the lyrics because there's nothing that's going to incite anyone's violent passions in those songs i don't think really right i mean not, nothing that i can think of i found anyway yeah and let's not be quick to blame this on like a southern rock contingent either because it's not yeah. only it's for sure not only that there's many like california-based in instances for example so i just there's a lot of you know like I think all bands have a lot of like shame, frankly, about like right. trying to trying to discuss these topics of their relationships to their fans. And so they don't get discussed. Yeah. Um, but I thought it was important to surface some of that because it does speak to this sort of mystical, much more like Beatles-esque, Elvis-esque religious question that I that I was interested in. Yeah, that <laughs> I wonder if some of that sometimes I think about, you know, Altamont or if you think about, you know, there was a, a guy died at Nebworth at Queen's last concert and it does happen in these big rock shows. And I think that in those cases, when you're talking about 30, 40, 50,000 people, it could just be proximity and drunkenness and just yeah. getting in people's faces and those kinds of things and less to do with the band. But of course the, the bands themselves are going to, they're going to carry that. They're going to carry that low because anytime someone either gets injured or, God forbid, dies at one of your shows. That's really going to stay with you, right? So yeah. I don't know really. I don't really know how you handle that. And I think maybe you're right. The oh, way to handle things is to talk about them and get them out in the open <laughs> and make it a shared experience that everyone can say, "Yeah, we've had that happen too." How did you deal with it? You know? Yeah, it used to be, and this is a you know easy Riot Girl connection. You know, um, when punk music first got started and mosh pits became a thing, and there was so much violence. And deliberate violence between between yeah. fans as they like engaged in a form of dance that just hurt a lot of people you know a lot of the feminist fans at that time were like girls to the front meaning you idiots who want to mosh around and sticky stick your elbows in each other's eyes get to the back yeah. those of us that want to actually engage in the music meaning all the girlfriends you brought with you you know <laughs> girls to the front to listen to the music where it's safe and boys go do your shenanigans your bloody shenanigans in the back 
you know? Yeah. And yeah, I just yeah. think it used to be that we could talk about the relationship between bands and their fans, but now we don't have as much of that. And I think that's a loss Yeah. and maybe a reason why rock music has fallen out of fashion because there was a church surrounding it. And now maybe we don't, we don't talk about the values of it as much. Yeah. And it's become like all things, all things tend to given time and <laughs> given time and market forces, it's become a lot more commercialized. And, you know, we're seeing in the last 12 months since the pandemic lifted and, and bands are touring again, some of the, the ticket prices. I know Springsteen's facing a huge backlash because of the quite extraordinary prices of some of those tickets where you get that disconnect and, and, and the church is broken because now you've got these outsiders coming in who are not really, it's, it's what Tom speaks about in, um, uh, when money becomes king, right? Where now we've got—I don't recognize any of these people. These are not the fans of this band. These are not the people who I who I yeah. share anything with. It's these people. It's just the greatest hits fans. It's a, a Queen podcast that I was listening to. Uh, that I listened to talks about the kind of magic tour when they've live aired and they get so big again that now they've got all these radio fans. Well, now they just go on to greatest hits tour. So now they're not playing all those deep cuts and they're not really playing for the fans. They're playing for the you know the champagne crowd. And I think there's that. There's definitely that sort of sense with a lot of artists. But I don't ever get the sense that Tom did that. And so again, I think that it's interesting that you've obviously firsthand you said that you've had experience of sort of this violence at some of these shows, and with that manifesting itself, it's I just find that really unusual, and I can't quite reconcile that. I'll need to sit sit for a little bit with some uh, and, and go through that in, in my head some uh, with some time, and hopefully um, the book will yeah. shed some light on it too. So yeah, I hadn't thought about that. The um, Joel Selvin's book on Altamont uh, really influenced my own need to speak about this in terms of other bands you know right um, and he's been he's been a really um kind mentor to me as far as just helping me work through what some of the issues at stake are right um a couple of other things i was, I was sort of again i haven't got to um straight into darkness in my podcast yet but i went through and listened to it a few times over the last couple of days again just to try and pick out any any little bits and pieces that i wanted to talk to you about and one thing that i noticed that i don't think i'd ever noticed before was um, long after dark came out November 82, the police went into the studio in December 82 and recorded King of Pain and King of Pain for synchronicity is very, very similar. Like tonally, it starts with that piano. It's basically the same piano progression and it's got that same sparse stripped back feel and the title of the song King of Pain. It's it, again, it's, it's that song of either it's introspection or it's sort of accusation, but it, it, I found like that, that's a parallel. I'd be very curious if Sting had heard this and thought that'll fit this idea that I've had. I was kind of curious about that. I don't know. I don't know if, do you know that I'd song? Be, I would, yeah. And I would yeah. be not at all surprised about that. Um, the police also took Tom Petty's videographer for the Every Breath You Take video, which then right. went on to win a music award the following year. <laughs> and so, I mean, for sure, the police were watching what the Heartbreakers were doing. I don't know if that yeah. was a mutual vibe. I don't know if they, I, I haven't really read anything about like whether they were friends or how they might've known each other, but you could say that they're of the same cohort. Oh, certainly, yeah. you know. And I said, the other thing that, you know, because we've talked about, again, introspection versus sort of the, you know, what, what you take from the lyrics on at face value. It also reminds me a little bit, there's a song by Chris Cornell called Through the Window, and he's talking about these things. He's talking about in first person, but talking about someone else. But then you realize that actually the person that he's looking at through the window is himself. Mm. And again, once you get that flip on that and you realize that when I listen to this, I've got to really reorient what I'm thinking about when I'm listening to this song to really get 
the most out of it. And I think this is one of those heartbreakers or Tom compositions that definitely fits that mold. You got lucky would be another one, right? It's, it's the same thing. It's not it's not about what you think it's about the first the first two two or three listens to. I don't think. Yeah. He says that is the most controversial song he ever wrote. You got lucky because the misinterpretation of it is so widespread. And people yeah. just think they just think Tom Petty's an asshole for writing it, <laughs> you know, like as if it was his personal, but it's a persona. He also is making fun of the guy who would say, you got lucky when you found me, babe. Yep. You know, he several there are several songs where he uses that kind of like nasally um more slightly higher pitch in his register yeah which maybe if you're not that familiar with his voice you could miss it but if you are familiar there's no way you could mis mistake that for anything but a character that he's doing yeah. at that time you know he does it on um spike also for the guys in the yes. bar that are making fun of spike right <laughs> he has a, a variety of sort of like hillbilly mockeries type <laughs> thing his his king of the hill character same deal you know yeah um he has he has this little extra voice that he throws in there that is for sure on you got lucky and people just don't notice it people just assume that it's his personal i statements when it's not it's a character yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> well again people people like um taking things out of context right especially mainstream media remember that when the the big furore uh, erupted over money for nothing you know the uh, the line in the song the yeah. with, with the f word in it and people no 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 it, again that that's not noffler using that word pejoratively is is highlighting that it's ridiculous that that's yeah. what people think like how do you miss yeah. this how do you not understand that i don't really understand how you don't <laughs> get that you know what i mean yeah and i was, I was looking at too that you know in that last verse don't believe all the good times are over i don't believe the thrill is all gone and i've always thought that about being a beautiful line too because it's a subtle nod back to bb king as well right the thrill is gone so he, he, i like that he sort of he has that real connection to his musical roots and, the, and obviously being a real student of the history of music and, and blues and rock music um that i like that sort of that blues inspired rock and roller in in the sense that it's about pain again on superficially it's about pain so all those little little bits and pieces that get thrown in and i wonder sometimes this is the question at the end of this monologue that i'm going through um <laughs> do you think sometimes when we're looking at these things and when we are reviewing these lyrics are we reading in sometimes more than the the writer intended? And sometimes it's like, well, that's a good line. Actually, I could just quite like that line. Do you think it's subconsciously he's thinking about that? Do you think he's intentionally doing that? Or do you think sometimes we're just seeing that after the fact and sort of putting our own interpretation on it? How far do you think, what, what do you think that line is? It uh, doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, that's my, my straightforward, I mean, Look, as somebody who is a creative who puts pieces of artwork out there for other people to engage with, there comes a point where you have to say, it was mine in the process, but now it's a product and other yeah. people have access to it and they're circulating it and getting what they need or out of it. And it's no longer mine to say, like, I might think your interpretation is dumb or unsupportable or like yeah. silly or so no one else can relate to it. You know what I mean? But like, whatever you're doing with it, my, whatever you're doing with my art product, that's pretty much gotta be fine with me or I shouldn't be putting it out there in the world in the first place, you yeah. know? And I think that's why Petty was saying he didn't like to explain his songs because he didn't want to constrain the interpretations of them. And he told Paul Zolo in a couple of, for a couple of different albums in, in, in Paul's questions about several different lines, he had said that he deliberately leaves it open. He wants the multiplicity of the interpretations to be there, Yeah, you know? Um, 
like there's a, a brief riff in the book about you know jokes about straightness because tom petty's dad thought he was gay and made fun of him for it and you know even though petty clearly was not gay he also was like an ally to queer people to a a limited extent um, women to a larger extent but queers to to a certain extent and he just maybe it was maybe there were gay jokes in there maybe maybe there was a an element of straightness that he that made him chuckle about that but maybe yeah. not i don't know but as a queer <laughs> person reading that that's what i get from it and i enjoy it it's meaningful to me that he left that interpretation available in by not narrowing down what the songs are about or the languages that he chose to write them in you know yeah so i think it's just it's got to be fine it's got to be fine absolutely and it's it, you know dylan always said the same thing right you know once i've recorded it and sent it out it's nothing to do with me anymore yeah how you interpret that i i I have no control over that and that's a good thing it's like my my daughter when she when she bowls once that ball's left her hand she's heading back to her seat i said well why don't you (laughs) i can't i can't there's nothing i can do now the ball's gone now it's nothing to do with me and we're like okay well it's a way of thinking about it and it's it's a useful sort of way of saying yeah i've i've from my side i've said what i thought i needed to say and how i wanted to say it how you interpret it, that is entirely up to you. And I think that when you've got a body of work that is interpreted in multifaceted ways, that's probably a good thing because that means you are able to write, you know, um, in generalities as well as specificity in the same line, yeah. which again is is so hard to do. I, yeah, musically, it's 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 funny too because it's a very it's a very simple song. And Tom was, again, sort of the master of economy, the master of you know, there's no fat on these songs. There's nothing in there that doesn't need to be there. And you get these big suspended chords and it's got that metronome sort of hat and cowbell background. It's verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, no solo, verse, chorus, out, done, easy. There's nothing yeah. in there. There's nothing that's musically challenging, but that, and I think that allows that space for the lyrics to really carry the message. And of course you do get the, you've got those suspended chords, so they're almost minor, but they're not really. And then when it breaks into straight into darkness, you get that big, bright, major chord and it, lifts it lifts all that tension out and again that build and release of tension was something else that he was just masterful at uh one of the reasons i see that you're very invested in the studio recording outputs and one of the Uh reasons that i spend an entire book on a single song is because i feel very invested in the live performances of the song and how they change over time and so I agree with you about the simplicity of the song itself, but then you see them doing stuff like going to Farm Aid and putting a saxophone solo in the middle of it. I need to address the saxophone solo. (laughs) You know what I mean? Or like sometimes there's like an extra 12 measures of piano at the bridge. Of course. yeah. I need to address those 12 bars, you know, Um, when they when they announced the track listing for the American treasure album that came out after he died, and I saw that straight into darkness, straight into darkness was going to be on there, and that the runtime was like 17 seconds longer than the studio time. I was yeah. like, "Oh my God, what's in those 17 <laughs> seconds? Is it going to change everything I wrote?" You know. And so, but truly, I mean, when you write yeah. a book that hinges on just a few words and a few measures, then that kind of thing can be very upsetting. And so I tried to consider like literally every version in performance of the song that I can find domestically, internationally, Yeah, you know? And so uh, seeing like, okay, now they're doing banter instead of doing a bridge. Now they're doing a sax solo. Where did they even find the saxophonist? Oh, they borrowed it from somebody else's band because it was a <laughs> festival gig, you know? Yeah. Just knowing stuff like that, like what they're willing to take a chance on, what they're not, when the yeah. song got shorter versus longer. 
seeing their experiments with it once they released their art product into the world that that also really interested me to try to get at some of those clues for what they might really be thinking it's about yeah. or or things that they regret having left out of the studio version etc yeah and i always talk about live versions because again i mean I'm, I'm not one of those people who when i go to see a live artist i don't want to hear the album version i don't want to you know people say this about nickelback oh they're so good it sounds exactly like the cd that's boring though i want to see a performance i want to see someone tell a story through the song and if it changes completely fantastic maybe not to dylan-esque extent you know maybe we can't even recognize it anymore but but that performative aspect is really important because they were a live band first and foremost you know the, the studio yeah. that, like you said that that tour studio tour studio cycle grinds and obviously tom loved both aspects because he loved creating and he loved being in the studio and he loved coming up with that that arrangement of it but then yeah the performative aspect of course yeah well let's let mike i mean you got mike campbell in your band let's let mike go for 12 16 bars on his on his guitar and play this he does it on longer or on um you got lucky in the live version there's a live version online i think no it's not from farm aid it's my i can't remember which one it is but he does he, he shreds into this beautiful blues solo which is completely it wouldn't fit wouldn't have worked on the on the uh studio version it wouldn't have worked in there because it would have been too jarring to have that that guitar yeah. tone and that sound. So, no, I'm totally on board. Like with that, I, I again, yeah, the live versions do inform a lot about. And sometimes I've I've heard some bands do. They'll throw in the verse that they were told to leave out. Right? They'll put that yeah. verse back in and just sing that, <laughs> or change a couple of lines back in. And that's always interesting too. It's like, what's he saying? Wait a minute, he's not singing the same lines there. <laughs> you know, so, okay. Um, so for my listeners quickly before we dig into some i'm going to give you the my 10 quick fire questions to see what you come up with um when is the book coming out where can people buy it the book comes out september 1st people can buy it anywhere books are sold <laughs> uh if you're a big box amazon or barnes and noble kind of person you can find it there um definitely request your local indie bookstore to order you a copy um, you can get a copy directly from the press from University of Georgia Press. And if you go directly through the press, I've got a 30% off discount code for you. 08 straight is the discount code. 08 straight. Fantastic. Well, I'll make sure I push that out because yeah, I, I only buy indie. My daughter is morally opposed now to Indigo and Bounce and Noble. She won't buy from there. So all our records, all our books come from local booksellers. Cause I mean, they're just better. I mean, bookstores and record stores. You go in there, they're just magical places. It's that tactile yeah. thing of just, this is a real thing. Like we... Okay, and this is, again, the, the 10 questions I sort of give to pretty much all the all the people I speak to throws up some uh, throws up some really interesting answers and things that I, one of the questions I, I want to get to, I, th I thought for sure this is going to be the answer that most people come back with and it just totally isn't. So, anyway, <laughs> so gun to your head, which oh, maybe that's a bad... <laughs> <laughs> Bad way to phrase uh, that within an American context, but if you had to pick only one Tom Petty album, which one you, would you choose? Yeah, okay. My question is, does it have to be an original studio recording? Because I would say playback, and if it can't be six albums, then I would say the <laughs> last album on playback only. The one with all the like disowned children on it. <laughs> Nobody's children, yeah. Awesome. No, we've um, had uh, people have picked live anthology. People, yeah, there's there's hacks to that question for sure. So playback and playbacks are great because you've got sort of I love the the titles of this with the big jangle, you know, children, all those things. They're they're very clever and very pithy. So okay, no, that's awesome. Second question, Mudcrutch or Traveling Wilburys? Which one do you uh, usually go with? I am low key obsessed with supergroups, but that said, <laughs> I am still going Mudcrutch. 
I am going Mudcrutch because just the the punkish stripped down origins of the band really appeal to me. I saw them on their reunion tour. They were amazing. There's a little bit about that in the book too. And the violence I encountered at the Mudcrutch show. (laughs) Um, I I never, I mean, a lot of people didn't get to see the Traveling Wilburys live because they only did so very few shows together. Um, And I love all the guys in the Traveling Wilburys, but I just, I'm interested in supergroups as a phenomenon, but not as a part of my own musical library from a fandom perspective i'm really okay. i'm interested in the ideas there what's well, a quick question for you then do you think i mean apart from the wilburys has there really been a super group at that level other than them uh i mean i thought super heavy stood a chance honestly okay. um i really enjoyed their first album i was sorry that they all went back to their original original groups to work on more projects i thought there was a lot of potential there um world potential not even just like american rock and roll potential right um because you got waylon jennings johnny cash you know the whatever the the highwaymen the highwaymen yeah so that one i think but maybe not quite as broad not not as broad appeal maybe um and then yeah. again a band like audio slave I, I struggled i mean i love audio slave and i love the two bands that that came from but it's it's the singer and the band it's not to me that's not really a super group you know what i mean yeah no um there was i forget was it maybe on a some some music awards there was a performance maybe it was a rock hall of fame c- ceremony that had the surviving members of Nirvana and Paul McCartney yeah. and then women doing Kurt Cobain's parts. And there was a, a cover from St. Vincent that I thought was amazing. And so I thought, oh, McCartney and Annie Clark and the surviving members of, <laughs> of Nirvana, that would be terrific. Be super you know? cool, yeah. That's a, that's a great band that hasn't formed yet, but just yeah. did for like three minutes for this one event. Um, that would be a good one. Well, yeah. Dave Grohl, I could Dave... come up with super groups all day. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dave Grohl's done, a, he did a little bit of that though, right? With the Real to Real, the Sound City um, yeah. soundtrack. He, he definitely put some sort of combinations of people together. And that was really, really cool getting just really creative people in a space and saying, okay, let's come up with this. You know, Actually, in the, yeah, in the uh, You Got Lucky episode, I found a version of Corey Taylor plays that song from Slipknot, plays that song lots, just acoustically. It's like, man, that, and that guy can sing. I don't know why he chooses to scream all the time because he's got such a beautiful voice. Anyway, okay. So if you could join the Heartbreakers on stage for one song, what would it be and what instrument would you play or would you sing? And so this, I always put the caveat in, if you're not a musician yourself, let's imagine that you can, any instrument that you did want to play, let's say you're proficient in it. Or I can excellent. sing. <laughs> and I can sing and I do play lap steel, although I'm oh, not okay. very good now that arthritis has taken over my hands a little bit um but i mean the obvious choice for the what song would it be is like well i guess the song that my book is about is the song (laughs) that it would be um but the truth is i think it would probably be anything that's rock and roll is fine which to me is the band's ultimate statement when people ask me like what's the one song you would bring if you had to listen to it on a loop on a deserted island usually i say anything that's rock and roll is really that's interesting yeah Okay. yeah it's a commentary on the whole process of the only one song thing right and Anything that's rock and roll is fine. <laughs> you know, it's kind of an answer, but also it, it gives the direct answer. But I think I think that's my quippy response to you about that. Awesome. So who would be your dream opening act at a Tom Petty concert? And I know, obviously, I think you've been to, you've, you saw the band quite a few times, it sounds like. Um, and so not one of the bands that you already saw, but a band that you didn't see live, who would be your, your ideal opener? 
Okay, so something that I admired about Petty is that he always put B-listers, up-and-comers, next waivers, younger yeah. generation folks. He never wanted to do like, you would never see the Heartbreakers tour with the Eagles, for yeah. example. Although on his final tour, he had Joe Walsh solo be the opener on several times. And I saw two of two, three of those shows, right? So yeah, yeah I, I love that all of his opening bands were smaller bands or bands that he wanted to help give a leg up to but honestly my dream opening act for tom petty and the heartbreakers is no opening act i'm talking <laughs> evening with evening with the heartbreakers and the heartbreakers alone like sit down in chairs if you need to boys but give us 35 more minutes you know um like the gigs they did at the fonda yeah like that like that really i, I didn't answer. i didn't have a chance to see any of those like far more intimate and cool limited yeah. seating venues with them but i would have really have liked to see those well, Mudcrutch must have been a smaller venue when you saw Mudcrutch, though, right? Because they weren't playing arenas. They were playing much. Yeah, I saw Mudcrutch at, I believe, the ta yeah the Tabernacle, and that's about 1,200 people at the oh. time. They had part of the balcony closed. So it was yeah. small, and I was in, like, maybe sixth or seventh row by the time the thing was over because, you know, everybody sort of crushes slowly yeah. towards the <laughs> yeah. front. Uh, the violence of that is also discussed, <laughs> in, the, is also discussed in the book. Um, but, yeah, I'd just love to see them with no opener. You know, just an evening with. And I, and I would just say in defense, too, that bringing out Joe Walsh, um, on, someone's got to look after Joe. You know, Joe, Joe needs to be looked after. He, Joe, love Joe, but he's not all there. He's not, he's not, you know, so. No, he's like, he's like in sort of the spirit animal of the Heartbreakers. Yes. You know? Yeah. <laughs> they appreciated his energy and vibe. And yeah. when they were at their most goofy, Joe Walsh could channel that. You know? Yeah, perfect fit. Yeah, because he is a yeah. big old goof, right? I mean, that's that's a great, great adjective for Joe Walsh. Yeah. Okay, so do you have a favorite band member of the Heartbreakers other than Tom Petty? Yeah, Ben Montench, hands down. Um, it's not because I have any great fondness for the piano or anything. I just personality-wise, I think if you uh, when when it comes to the Beatles, people assume that I'm a John Lennon person, but I'm a George Harrison person. And I think for most for most George Harrison people, I think Ben Montench is where it's at also, you know. Um, he does drive a lot more of the songs than people think that he does. Yep. And, ha I mean, has a lot more influence there, even if there's no credits there necessarily, even though, even though Mike got a lot of writing credits yep. more than Ben Mont did, I think. And, and just personality-wise, the orneriness of Ben Montench <laughs> is beautiful. It's so yeah. beautiful. And he's just a little younger than than them. And so there's always that, like, you know, like younger brother or close cousin following along type mentality. Yeah. There's there's a lot of things that I enjoy about Ben Mont. I also think he's a great solo artist. And I don't know. He just seems like a real cool individual. He's always got an interesting hat on. <laughs> he, knows, he knows how to dress himself. There's a lot of things to appreciate about Ben. Um, yeah. So that's where my heart is at. And he's super intense too. I love his intensity. You can tell that he lives hard every second. Like he, he lives hard. He laughs hard. He loves hard. You know what I mean? Like he's one of those people yeah. who is always, it seems like he's always present. And again, like, I mean, talk about prolific. You know, talk about respected by his peers. The, num the sheer yeah. volume of work that he's done outside the Heartbreakers would be a career alone and you talk about being you know an integral part of the sound i commented on this when you get into damn the torpedoes and i don't know if it was a conscious thing that jimmy Iovine did or the band did ben Mont's really brought forward the organ becomes much bigger uh in the mix and that's because it was a big part of the live act 
that's a big part of the Heartbreaker sound is, is Ben Mont's playing. And again, very quite understated quite a lot of the time. But I think Jim, Jimmy Ivey maybe recognized that and thought, well, we need to make it sound more like the live act. So then Ben Mont gets his dues, which I, you know, yeah, a phenomenal player. And again, like, as a keyboard player, I'm not my keyboard, as a keyboard player myself, it's, yeah, it sounds simple always playing, but it, it really isn't. And he's playing quite often, he's playing piano with one hand, keys with the other, and syncopating those two things is tricky than people may think. Yeah, he's very talented. Yeah. And I love, yeah, I love the guy. Um, if and also, yeah, you're, George Harrison is the correct answer. That's not that's not subjective. <laughs> it is the correct answer. So. My wife um, loves Ringo the most, and it's a subject <laughs> of like, I mean, at least it's not Paul McCartney or anything. You know? <laughs> I love, I but love still. all of them. I love all, I love all of them. But George was just so effortlessly cool, effortlessly yeah. cool, and just genuine, right? And he kind of looks. My dad looked quite a lot like George when he was younger because he had the hair and the mustache. So anyway. <laughs> So if you could time travel, go back and see any Tom Petty concert from history that you didn't see, which one would you go and see? Man, that's hard. I mean, I wrote about so many iconic shows <laughs> in the book. I guess yeah. they're, I, I would have liked to have been to the original Fillmore, you know, and so yeah. any of those several shows. But I think more than a specific show, I would have wanted to see the Heartbreakers as the backing band for Dylan's uh never ending or true yeah. the true confessions tour yeah. is what they were calling it at the time um because they are a killer backing band i think the e street band gets a lot of credit for being like oh the, they can back anybody but man my money's on the heartbreakers honest to goodness <laughs> and there are times there's bootlegs from those shows where petty and the heartbreakers were backing bob dylan and you cannot tell that it's not bob singing the song it's your tom has traded out a verse and it's tom singing the song and it's a dead impersonate dylan you know which i think he tried not to do overtly yep. but it's there in the sound that we can still hear on on those bootlegs you know i think i really would have just like seen what they do when even tom is led by someone else and that's also why i enjoyed seeing mud crutch live is to see what happens when tom is led by someone else yep. because he is extremely capable of that and enjoys it to us it's like you know what it's like it reminds me of um meryl streep in the abba musical movie <laughs> you know right. it's yeah. like she's so above anyone else that's cast in that movie yeah. and she's so <laughs> experienced in ways that have nothing to do with this little production little sidelong situation she's got going on <laughs> but like she's so happy to be there to relax for a change you yeah. know and it, I just would like to see him relax into into that type of flow. Yeah, it's funny, you, you know that that the mud crutch thing. You know who does that? Like who, when you're an arena rock star and you can fill MSG and you can fill the forum, goes back, finds his old buddies he was in a band with forty years ago, and says, you know what? Let's just go. We'll go back out on tour. Let's let's dust off some of those songs. We'll write some new ones. But that's just that's doing it for the love of doing it. That's just the sheer love of doing it. You know, and, and then it, to chart with one of those singles, which you didn't even write, the famous yeah. guy in the band didn't even write it. The drummer wrote it. Yes. Come on. That's precious. Just, so it's precious. Just beautiful. And you, yeah. you talk about it. It's funny you mentioned the E Street Band too, because I was talking when I was talking to Jeff Slate, he, he brought up the, we, we talked about this too. The Heartbreakers are such a criminally underrated band as a band, just as a yeah. band. Um, and the E Street Band are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame alone without Springsteen as a band. Which is oh, I didn't know that somewhat odd because they're, because they have no albums, no output. 
outside of that, right? So I think it's so, yeah, the heartbreakers. You know, you go and you talk about the Dylan tour, and we talk about Ben Mont being such a good player. He's the guy who was the Dylan obsessive, and Dylan comes out, yeah, we're going to do rainy day women, but we're doing it in F. So all the guys kind of look over at Ben Mont. He's like, ah. so they're yeah. watching this for him yeah. for the changes because they don't know now. You know, so that that to be able to be that nimble. You have to be very, very, very good musicians. You have to be well rehearsed and just know your instruments and know the structure of the songs. And so, super cool. I'm, t I'm totally on board with that as well. Seventh question: Walls Circus or Walls Number Three? Which is your favorite version? I mean, I have no skin <laughs> in this game. <laughs> I think it, it's a cool song and sort of a. It's a. I'm, I'm just gonna say circus. I like it because it's busier. I don't right. have a lot of concrete, super specific examples or rationale to give for why that is but yeah. when circus comes up i bop a little harder than when number three comes up that's all i gotta say perfect <laughs> <laughs> this one's one of my favorite questions because this this one brings up some some really cool answers so if you could pick any artist to cover any tom petty song and again preferably someone who hasn't done that because eddie vedder's done a lot and there's been lots of covers of tom's music um who would it be and what song would you have them cover i don't care what song i want it to be a woman I think I've seen some really good covers from St. Vincent, AKA yeah. Annie Clark. Um, I'd also like to see, I don't know. I think there's like the, the quickness of some of the, of the lyrics. I, I'd like to see some different genre covers. Like why not Missy Elliott? Can we get a Missy Elliott cover of Tom Petty? I think that would be cool as all get out. Yeah. You know, um, I think Melissa Etheridge could do a good job so like in whatever era you want to talk about and whatever genre you want to talk about let i think i think hearing from women in these songs yeah. would be amazing hearing women cover american girl come on that's <laughs> that's a gimme you know yeah. it truly is a gimme it's on the team um, <laughs> something that i like that's been happening since his death is you know he had two daughters and um adria the elder daughter has had a, a long music uh production career of her own she's worked on music videos for all kinds of folk like beyonce you yeah. know like all kinds of people and she seems to be the one who's really guiding the product that come out now and yeah. the way uh the heartbreakers legacy is visually represented to people from new merchandise or reissues um, all the way up to like new music videos that have never been seen before and her eye and those music videos the the concepts for them are so smart and just the the gaze of them is feminist you know yeah and so i just i just really have to applaud adria i know some people are like ah no one will ever be satisfied with the way this legacy gets managed but i think no. she's doing actually a really good job and honoring her dad's politics in a way that is like sort of unexpected and delightful um so yeah if there's to, if there's to be more official covers in the works if there's to be more solicitation yeah. of artists to cover then i plead adria pick women i don't think i need <laughs> to though because i think she knows to do that i think she probably would i don't know if you're familiar with a she's an indie artist called margot cotton have you heard her mm -mm. she's a louisiana based she and she does a lot of a lot of covers a lot of different rock music i'll, I'll maybe send you a link to a couple of her but she gets inside the songs really quite nicely um, and has a quite a unique voice. Um, so I'll maybe send you a couple of those because they're, they're pretty cool. But yeah, I Grace Jones did which one? Which one did Grace Jones do? That was a weird cover. And I don't, I can't think what it I was don't know, now. but I'm going to look it up. You know who I don't need to hear Tom Petty covers from? Who's that? <laughs> send me your hate mail, Stevie <laughs> Nicks. I don't need to hear Tom Petty covers from Stevie Nicks. Yeah. 
he get he gave her some good material oh, you know he wrote yeah. some good material for himself and didn't need it and gave it to her and he wrote some material expressly for her and now i don't want to hear from her about this <laughs> you know when when mike campbell decided to join up with fleetwood mac i don't think anyone was surprised by that yeah. in the least but i also don't think it means that fleetwood mac should be doing heartbreakers material nope i agree and goodbye send me your hate mail but what he did do brilliant was when he brought in Margot Price for the for the Knobs album, which when that song comes in, State of Mind, and her voice cuts in into that second verse, you're like, oh my God, this is beautiful. And I could totally hear Tom and her singing that song together would have been just oh, out of this world. Yeah. Would have been out of this I world, miss, I think. I miss the Dirty Knobs on their first swing through Atlanta, which is where I live, but they're coming yeah. again in a couple of months and I do have tickets. Hopefully, hopefully COVID does not reemerge, <laughs> bite us all in the butt on that one, but I'm excited oh. to see them live. Yeah, I am too, but I, I mean, I'm from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. I mean, the chances, I, I mean, I'm hoping they come through Edmonton, Calgary, somewhere close that I can drive five or six hours because that's totally, totally within the within the ballpark. So, okay, so you kind of, I don't know if this would maybe be an answer that you've already given, but what song do you most frequently recommend to people who don't know Tom's music? Do you have a go-to or do you really tailor it to the person, which is what I tend to do? I don't tend to recommend a specific song. Okay. I mean, either a person wants to do homework or they don't want to do homework, but me giving them one specific song to hang it all on is not yeah. going to be a make or break. Normally I'm just like, you should spend an hour Googling this, you know, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, look it up, yeah. see what suits you, see what grabs you. Yeah. Um, I seldom try to like medicinally prescribe a particular song to a particular person. I could, I just, I, I don't know. I, I just don't tend to. Um, I guess yeah. I would say, well, I wrote a whole book about Straight Into Darkness, <laughs> so that's one that I would obviously recommend. Um, but if they really don't know anything, anything, then there's no reason why it's not cool to start with the top 40 hits, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Free Fallen's an easy end, right? But I mean, I think, but yeah. I think, again, Straight Into Darkness, while it wasn't a single and it's not, I mean, outside the sort of the hardcore fandom, I don't think it is that well known. It's yeah. a very, it's a very approachable song melodically. It's, it's got a good hook. It's got all the elements of a, a hit song that you can sort of tap along to, and you're going to remember, you're going to be singing it in your head. So I think that would, you could, you could totally do that one. I think you'd spin that. Okay, so my last question for you in this little, my ten quick fire questions, which have turned out to not, and always turn out to be not very quick fire, which is great. Um, describe Tom Petty in three words. Uh. <laughs> You sent me this question in advance, so you think I would have prepared something, but I, <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't. My, I was thinking like dead spiritual gangster, <laughs> like, just as a like status update. Tom Petty is a dead spiritual gangster. Dead spiritual gangster. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that's the answer that came to my mind first and foremost. I love um, it. Yeah, I got I got nothing. I don't know. Some people, you really can't boil them down to three words. In the introduction no. to the book, I refer to him as my rock and roller. Yeah. So that's a sort of, that's about three words. Uh, there's a long hyphenate in there, but my rock and roller <laughs> is maybe the next next best guess that I've got. Okay. So again, um, the book is available September 1st. You can get it from all good bookstores, please. And I would encourage people to, to buy um, from small independent retailers if you can, if you have access to them, because especially during COVID, they need help coming out of that and rebounding. Um, and all that money goes back into your local community, you know. So that's my little pitch for uh, 
for buying local. So did you have any sort of last things? Where can people follow you? Where can people sort of see what you're up to? Yeah, you I said you've got a, an Alanis Morissette book in, uh, coming out too, or a project coming up. Yeah, that's going to be um, in 2025 with the of Texas Press. It's already under contract, so it is happening. Yeah, It is not only about Jagged Little Pill. The book is about um, how Alanis has kept living up to all the things that she said in Jagged Little Pill. Right. And if you have tuned out of her since then, it's maybe time to check in now that we're all middle-aged. Right? <laughs> um, it's, so it's it's similar to this Straight Into Darkness book, but it treats a whole album and like all the tentacles that come out from that album um, and all the other things that she's done with her life and her work since then. So it's sort of, sort of similar. If you like this book, you'll probably be into that one too. Um, the launch party for this book is on the 10th of September. Okay. And that's going to be on Zoom so everybody can watch it live or wait for the recording to come out on YouTube. Um, and I'll, I'll send you the publicity materials for that so you can include them. But that's Perfect, going to be yeah. great. It's going to be a panel discussion of the book. I'm going to do just a short little reading. And then we've got four or five different people, um, musicians, philosophers, journalists, music critics coming to talk about what the book means to them or like how their life connected with Tom Petty's and how that connects with the things I, I discuss in the book. That's a pretty cool intersection of people and disciplines here eh? to be able to bring together through one song. Well, it's kind of I a mean, wild idea. <laughs> I, my whole life I've worked in an interdisciplinary manner, you know, yeah. American studies is not about one thing the same way gender studies is not about one thing. You know, yeah. it's a lens that we can apply to everything. So I always bring, you know, sociology here, psychology here, philosophy here. Yeah. You got to have a mix because that's life. I get, I get the sense that I could probably pick your brain for a good six, seven, eight hours. <laughs> so if I'm ever in the neighborhood, I might grab you for coffee and uh, pick your brain a little bit more. So, yeah. And yeah, I was going to, I said, I'd love that um, uh, rock and rolls for girls on the, the t-shirt yeah on the I, mean, I swear to you i happen to be wearing it today <laughs> That's i awesome. happen to have it on today you know so, your email didn't come in until much later in the day but yeah just threw it on i thought well this is going to work out to be a yeah. great interview then because that's just karmically <laughs> excellent that that happened perfect okay well i've taken up enough of your time i'll let you get on with your with your day your pajamas in your in your house and maybe you can have a smoke or a drink and <laughs> and on to your next interview. So, <laughs> yes, indeed. All right. Thanks for thinking of me. I'm looking forward to seeing the final cut. Yeah, you bet. Thank you so much. I'll speak to you later. Bye bye. Okay, peeps, that's all for this week. Um, once again, don't forget to go check out Megan's website at meganvolpert.com and make sure you pick up Straight Into Darkness Tom Petty is Rock Mystic. Also, check out some of her other work and do read the article she wrote on October 4th, uh, 2017, in Order of Tom. Again, there'll be a link in the episode notes to that. Uh, please remember that you can continue to support humanitarian efforts in Ukraine in many different ways. Um, and please do so if you have the resources or continue to do so if you have been doing already. As always, I've added a link to the Red Cross donation page in the episode notes, and I'll continue to do that as long as it's necessary. Um, the Tom Petty Project is a proud member of the Deep Dive Podcast Network. And if you like nerding out over your favorite bands, do go check. There's lots of stuff in there. It's mainly oriented toward heavy rock, but I'm sure that's going to grow as the as, as the months and years progress. Um, so you can check them out on Twitter at Deep Dive Podnet. Um, don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. And of course, go find me on YouTube as well. This one will also have a, a video. You can you can watch Megan and I uh, chatting on this one if you want to. So go follow, like, and subscribe as applicable. And please leave a review or a rating if you haven't already. Um, 
the Tom Petty project is not affiliated with the Tom Petty estate in any way. And when you're looking for, you know, Tom's music or merchandise, please visit all the official channels. Go to the YouTube channel, go to TomPetty.com and buy t-shirts and mugs and all kinds of other different things. And please also don't forget to check out the Tom Petty Nation and Tom Petty Fans Forever groups on Facebook. They're both excellent fan communities. They're great to hang out with. So if you're not already a member of those, go look at those because they're, they're fun. You'll enjoy them. Um, So until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Um, Stay safe and healthy, and I'll be back with you next week to dig into the third song from Long After Dark, the upbeat rocker, Deliver Me. Bye-bye.